have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmella. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode two, where we'll be speaking to podcaster Neil McRobert and writer and editor Nicasio Reed. Welcome back to Casting Lots podcast. Today we're joined by Neil McRoberts. Neil, would you like to introduce yourself and tell our listeners a bit about you and your connection to survival cannibalism? Every time you ask that, it sounds like you're asking who our guest has eaten. I was going to say, I haven't devoured anyone that I know of, although I did shop at Iceland for a while in the 2010s, so (laughs) who knows. I have a kind of tangential link to cannibalism, thankfully. I'm the host of a podcast called Talking Scared, which I describe, hopefully pithily, as a podcast for horror readers who want to know where their favourite stories come from and what frightens the people who wrote them. Basically, it means I talk to a different famous horror author every week. I say horror, it's a very broad church. As long as the books have an element of the macabre in them, I'll talk to them and we get into their work, their lives, their inspirations and quite often the things that terrify them. And a few of those authors, I I think, will come up in this conversation. I'm sure that we've probably read some of them ourselves. To get us started, I would love to hear your thoughts on what is it that makes cannibalism horrific. Obviously, we here at Casting Lots have a very positive attitude towards cannibalism. Pro-cannibalism if you will. (laughs) But some people find it scary, so what are your thoughts on that? Weirdos, right? Weirdos. So I've been listening to your show now on my daily dog walks, and I am quite delighted by how humanistic you are in your approach to cannibalism, because I listen to a lot of true crime, horrible, you know, relishing the details type podcasts, where it's all about how awful this stuff is. And you talk about how it's necessary. And in the case, for example, of the Uruguayan flight disaster, how it's a very human, almost respectful thing to do. That's fine. But I think, right, this is a weird thing to say in public, right? (laughs) Can't wait. For me, there isn't really a stigma attached to cannibalism for me. And I've never quite understood why people are so horrified by why it is this universal taboo above and beyond, you know, prion disease and the fact that you will possibly get very ill. I always think if I was in a real disaster where I had to eat somebody who was hopefully already dead to stay alive, (laughs) I wouldn't wait till I was starving. I'd start early on whilst they were still fresh, whilst they were the most used to me. Keep myself fit and healthy so I can get out of the situation. Don't wait until you're emaciated. But that's just me. You'd have done very well on the Elizabeth Rashley. They still had food. (laughs) and I look forward to getting to that one but yeah so there is nothing for me particularly frightening about the act of consuming meat I mean I've just gone vegetarian so that's added complexity for me it's more the sense of being in a situation that is bad enough that you have to resort to that because very few reasonable people are munching down on their friends if stuff 
hasn't really gone wrong. And that, to me, is the terrifying thing. But again, this is only with survival cannibalism. It's not so much with the Jeffrey Dahmers of this world, which is a whole different topic and different podcast. I always call things like Hannibal Lecter and Jeffrey Dahmer. It's the gentrification of cannibalism, right? <laughs> like the survival cannibalism is the true authentic cannibalism. And then the hobbyists. Yes, hips the cannibals. Exactly. But I think one of the things when you look into cannibalism as part of fiction well, it's polarising anyway. Most people have very strong opinions mm-hmm. and most of them are, this is wrong. <laughs> but from a fictitious perspective, it does tend to always either be something that's absolutely horrifying or I'm thinking of how Alive, mm-hmm. which did quite a good job of doing the Uruguayan story, but you have horror or you have tragedy, there doesn't seem to be any other route that cannibalism takes in fiction that I'm aware of. I would love to be proven incorrect. Well, there's Cannibal the Musical, of course. That's a little bit different, but... Yeah, it's interesting. So horror and tragedy. Obviously, I deal much more in the horror world than the tragedy world. But even within horror, when I was kind of coming up with lists of books to kind of talk to you guys about, it struck me that there are three strands to the horror. You get the survival cannibalism in books like Alma Katsu's The Hunger or Dan Simmons' The Terror. And to an extent, something like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, that is more violent, that is more abhorrent in the way it's depicted. I mean, they're eating babies, you can't really make it nice. (laughs) So you get the survival cannibalism, which weirdly tends to be kind of historical retellings. Then you get the hillbilly cannibal stuff. So to name some books, things like Off Season by Jack Ketchum, who was one of the absolute kings of a genre called splatterpunk, which is kind of like just the most horrible stuff you can imagine. I love that as a genre name. That's so evocative. Yeah. It sort of seared itself into my brain as a term. Jack Ketchum does it well with with absolute reckless abandon and and Off Season is very much that. And then there's a book called Kin by a guy called Keelan Patrick Burke a book called Brother by Anya Arlborn, which I haven't read. Everyone says I've got to read it. I need to catch up with it. But they are very much in the tradition of sort of Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Hills of Eyes, which were in turn inspired by Sawney Bean, the 17th century Scottish cannibal who lived in a cave and used to, you know, he had like 40 incestuous children and he was eating passers-by. So both universal taboos, incest and cannibalism. So there's that strand, there's the hillbilly horror. And then the other strand which I think is the one that is most distressing, is this industrialised cannibalism, I suppose. And this is the thing I've only seen in fiction, not so much in film. Um, There's a book that came out recently, an Argentinian book, by an author called Augustina Basterica called Tender is the Flesh. I'm familiar with that one. (laughs) One of the most distressing things I've ever read in my life about just that. So we can only eat animals for various reasons, so we're now farming people on the same kind of scale that we farm animals currently it's horrendous the one that most people won't know about is a short story by neil gaiman of all people called baby cakes which is exactly the same premise it's a one-page short story and it basically says all the animals ran out and there's this line that just says didn't matter we had babies and it, it goes on from there as you can imagine and that industrialized thing for me is the one that is the true horror perhaps because it reveals the hypocrisy of our carnivorous ways and in real life as well, the ones that we look at in casting lots, the most distressing ones 
are the cases where it's a sort of socially engineered mass cannibalism due to created famine. And it's a similar concept there, isn't it? That it's almost created as a necessity by humans rather than just by random disaster. You know something? Something's just dawned on me. I've spent all day listing stories and books about survival cannibalism and just for- and I've forgotten that I wrote one. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Please do tell us more. I... <laughs> I wrote a short story called A Well-Fed Man, and it's in a collection called Fiends in the Pharaohs 2. It's a collection of folk horror stories by Nose Touch Press. And my story is about a little boy. I don't really clarify where it's set, but it's fairly obviously Ukraine, if you know your history. And it's set in the Holomodor. And it's about a young boy who is warned by his mother never to talk to well-fed men, because they're all starving. And then he starts being pursued by a well-fed man through the village. Yeah, I forgot that I wrote the very thing we're talking about. That sounds amazing. Is that book still available? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, you get it on Amazon, I think, if you want to go to the enemy. Or just go to Nose Touch Press's homepage. It's Fiends in the Pharaohs 2 is the book. Mine is the only one with cannibalism in it, as far as I know, so don't go buying it expecting an omnibus of cannibal stories. We'll pop a link in the show notes and our listeners can go and make an informed decision about whether the book is for them. <laughs> Where you're talking about industrial cannibalism, mm -hmm. I think one of the most iconic phrases in cannibalism media, if we ignore Hannibal Lecter... Father Beans and a Nice Chianti. That's the one. I would say... Underneath that, surely it's Soylent Green is people? Yeah. I think it definitely comes under that industrial process and sort of the human body is being broken down to composite parts and being made into mm -hmm. Soylent Green. There was actually one of those protein drinks that was called Soylent and I was like, that's a bad choice. I don't think someone did their marketing research there. <laughs> Yeah, someone do a Google search, please. You've mentioned several books already that deal with survival cannibalism, but I wondered whether you had any particular favourites or recommendations that you'd like to dig into a bit more. Other than your own, of course. Well, The Hunger is a neo-classic, really. For people who don't know, The Hunger is a supernaturally informed retelling of the Donner Party, which delves into Native American lore. It's fantastic. The two books that, well, one's a book and one's a short story. A short story that I think is one of the most famous evocations of survival cannibalism amongst people in the know is a short story by Stephen King called Survivor Type. Are you familiar with this? I, I haven't read that. I wasn't aware King had written a cannibalism story. So it's in his collection Skeleton Crew from the 80s. And it, it basically it's about a man who either his boat sinks or he crashes on a desert island. Very much Tom Hanks in Castaway, okay? Classic setup. He's a surgeon, happily, and all he has with him is his tools. And the food runs out, so he sets about eating himself. Oh, a nice bit of auto-cannibalism. Exactly that, yeah. I'm going to spoil this now for people, but it's got, I think, one of the best last lines ever in a story. Because he's basically eaten everything but the one limb he needs to do the cutting. And he knows there's no hope left. And the final line is, people say you are what you eat. And if that's true, I guess I haven't changed. That's brilliant. <laughs> a lot of people talk about it being really horrifying. I think it's a black comedy. I think it's, it's laugh out loud funny, you know. 
But then again, we are people who have quite a bit of time for pro-cannibalism. The other one, just to mention briefly, because it's a kind of a scance take on survival cannibalism, is a book called Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin. Gretchen Felker Martin is a trans writer and they are provocative in their fiction, shall we say. And it's a story, it's one of these gender dystopia things that are kind of all the rage at the minute, but pushed to the absolute max. It's in a world in which this disease affects anybody over a certain threshold of testosterone. And if you become infected, you become basically a murderous, insane rape zombie, to put it nicely. And you get these different camps where men are monstrous things and a lot of women have become kind of militant in their defence against men. And in the middle, you have these sort of trans protagonists who have to keep the testosterone levels low enough to not be infected whilst fighting off this army of militant, what the book calls militant turfs. And and the only way they can keep their T levels low enough is by killing the men and devouring their testicles. This sounds like it comes from a brilliant mind. <laughs> it, it comes from a very brilliant mind. It comes from a very, very, as I say, provocative mind. And the book is intentionally abrasive. It sets out to upset you. I interviewed Gretchen for the podcast. It was a great interview. But yeah, it's, it's not for the faint-hearted by any means. But apart from being a great story about survival and cannibalism, it also really works as a fantastic metaphor for, you know, gender issues in the current climate. But yes, that's my scan sort of shoehorned in recommendation to read Manhunt. I've just remembered that I learned the phrase splatterpunk was about Gretchen's book. But there you go. It's a phenomenal book. Someone needs to have, no pun intended, the balls to make a adaptation of it because it would kill. (laughs) That was two in one there. Now, one of the things that comes up in adaptations of historical instances of cannibalism, thinking the hunger and the terror is there does seem to be this need to mythologise the cannibalism. It can't simply be a standalone horrifying action. There's always an extra element that's added in. Do you think that cannibalism by itself sometimes is almost too tame for the horror genre and whether people want to add something else to it to add that extra dimension? That's a very good question because you're right. The hunger features... Native American demons and the terror has got this what I thought was real Inuit law, but actually isn't. It's it's created. I think there's something about cannibalism when it isn't done for purely murderous reasons that perhaps we actually are all deep down, despite this taboo, perhaps we are all sympathetic enough to understand that we probably would resort to that. And therefore, yeah, perhaps it's not enough in historical survival context, to constitute villainy. That's what I like to hear, because obviously we think it makes a lot of sense. Because we know that we need to do it. Of course, in the terror, you have Hickey, who is a villainous character, and he is a driving force behind it. But even then, he's a very human character, and you can kind of see why he's become the person he's got to survive. So yeah, I think perhaps it's not enough to just benchmark a villain, and then we need this metaphysical threat to really drive on the horror certainly in real life cases of survival cannibalism we've often found that in mostly newspaper reports and we have been pretty damning of journalists of the past on this podcast before but 
they've often historically liked to pinpoint one person as the instigator of cannibalism and to treat them as this sort of a supervillain. Yet there's always the one character who's found with a man's beating heart in his mouth, <laughs> laughing maniacally when the rescuers arrive. And that sort of speaks to what we've been saying in fiction. It's also true in journalistic nonfiction. To make a good story, you have to have that element of villainy on top of the cannibalism, which, as we said, is perhaps understandable. I'm thinking about the film Ravenous, the Antonia Bird film with Robert Carlyle and Guy Pearce. It's one of those films that is a true cult classic, I think. And that is, for those who don't know, the premise is there's a frontier four manned by Guy Pearce and a motley crew of soldiers. And then one winter, Calhoun, played by Robert Carlyle, as you say, maniacally, turns up saying that he survived a very kind of Donna Party-esque scenario. And it's interesting that to make that film work, they had to make a singular person. They couldn't have like this crew of people turn up who show the human face of desperation. It had to be one person who didn't just eat his party, but actually, well, you get the implication, killed a lot of them to eat them. Reveled in it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's the reveling. It's the joy. It's the glee in the transgression, I suppose. And the interesting extension of that is, of course, that in these newspaper reports or fictional stories, the reader, we are revelling in that character. So it's almost a reflection of what the reading audience is feeling towards cannibalism in a way. Well, yeah, I mean, we are all fascinated. I mean, and this is no criticism, but you guys provide that same opportunity you know for us to kind of dip a toe into what it would be like and obviously you do it in a very as I say human and and very kind of responsible way there isn't much reveling on your part on the actual you know the viscera shall we say or it doesn't come across that way anyway what you get into in your personal lives I don't need to know (laughs) but I listen to your show because I'm fascinated by people who eat people I mean that says a lot about me but I, I think we're all fascinated by serial killers you know and the more transgressive the better I suppose as awful as that sounds and I think what's often forgotten in real life cases is that with so much focus being put on the cannibal we forget about the people who they're eating a lot of the time we sort of lose the human tragedy in the gleeful horror exactly that and it's a human tragedy for the quote-unquote cannibal as well for the person who has had to resort to the final resource to stay alive. Mm. I know that we all, we all, definitely, everyone has had the conversation about would you or wouldn't you eat a person. But I know that from having thought about it, I would. It would mess me up in the head. And I think when you have this very black and white, you have three characters, don't you? You have the supervillain cannibal, you have the innocent victim... And you have the conflicted hero. Mm. All three are human. Yeah, and I'm now feeling a bit uncomfortable in the the fact that I quite quickly told you I'd eat people if I was just a little bit peckish. (laughs) To bring it back to horror for a second, because I know far more about that than I do real-world cannibalism, something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we think of that film as just good versus evil. These teenagers against this horrendous crew of inbred cannibals. That film is actually meant as a kind of metaphor for people who are forgotten. They work for generations in a slaughterhouse, and then when the slaughterhouse shut down, literally because the highway took all industry away from the town where they live, and they're just kind of left 
to rot. That in itself is a form of survival cannibalism, a very bleak one, but it turns survival cannibalism into a metaphor for desperation that I think is more and more and more relevant today with the inequality and and you look at america today i mean britain's bad enough but you look at america and you've got whole swathes of that country that is just cut off it's just left behind and then that's when you get the hillbilly which in its way is a form of cultural prejudice and there's a reason these cannibalistic metaphors are always imposed on these people who have been left behind by society and by progressiveness and I think, yes, yeah, so I'll talk about the humanity of it all. I think when you look at something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or the Hills Have Eyes or stuff of that ilk, it's important to look at them as a metaphor for people in economic straits as well as just, oh, aren't they awful because they're eating grandpa. I know we joked about it a little earlier on about the gentrification of cannibalism, but when you put it like that, I can't think of any urban cannibalism stories they do all tend to be for that sort of hillbilly genre out in Mm -hmm. the quote-unquote sticks and i have to be honest my main experience is that episode of torchwood where it happens so that might show where my cultural line is (laughs) i can very easily imagine a sort of urban dystopia with these same narratives coming up but i can only think of the real life examples of sieges i can't really think of cities being used as that landscape at least not yet i'm sure the minute we hang up i'll think of like four films or books that have done exactly that but i can't think the only times they happen is in things like american psycho in which you eat somebody or again in real life you know dharma or recently that film Fresh, have you watched that on on it's on the Disney Channel? <laughs> I have been recommended it by so many people and I'm always like oh, it's survival cannibalism, not all cannibalism, but you know still slightly throwing that there's cannibalism in American psycho, to be honest. No, I as I always warn people, the book is a very different beast to everything else that came from that. But again, as you say, it's not survival cannibalism, so no, I can't think of a case of urban survival cannibalism in fiction. I think perhaps the zombie performs that metaphor more ably. Mm, That's true. I don't normally think of zombie media as cannibalism media, but of course that's what it is really. Mm. I have to be honest, there is one thing that has been in my head since we started talking about cannibalism as a form of othering and how sometimes survival cannibalism isn't enough. Carmela knows exactly what I'm going to say here. My rather obsessive mind when it comes to the whale ship Essex. There's a fictionalisation of one of the stories of the ilk of the hunger and the terror. However, the thing that is worse than the cannibalism is a completely ahistorical accusation of incest against one of the cannibals. And it's almost as though that is the thing that has to take place so that the cannibalism itself isn't as quote-unquote justified. That book has stayed with me for far longer than it should have done. (laughs) Is that In the Heart of the Sea? No. In the Heart of the Sea is... The book is non-fiction. The film is beautiful, but mm, it's not accurate. It's a book called The Jonah Man. It's only horror in as much as cannibalism is 
considered to be a horrific act. It's quite a neutral bildungsroman of the main character, one of the characters. Sorry, I've just had that in my head for so long about the Jonah Man, I just had to say it out loud. Okay. I have something in my head that's got no segue either, so let me just dump this on you because I'm trying to work out whether this qualifies as survival cannibalism. And as a dog lover, an obsessive dog lover, in my mind it does. Have you ever heard of the story A Boy and His Dog? No, but I've got an idea of where it might be going. (laughs) Well, it's by Harlan Ellison, the famous, very misanthropic science fiction writer. It's the typical post-apocalyptic thing. It's Mad Max. It's about this boy and his dog who are just navigating this fallen world of marauding clans and etc. And it's a weird book. It reads like kind of YA Lord of the Flies type stuff, but goes in some really quite odd sexual directions. But what basically happens is this boy and his dog are the best of friends and they work together to overcome adversity. And then half of the book, the boy, Vic, meets this girl and he falls in love. And it's kind of Garden of Eden, you know, forbidden knowledge type parable almost. And then adventures ensue and Blood, the dog who you're rooting for all the way through because it's a dog, gets very ill and is at death's door. And you are led to... (laughs) You assume, because they're all starving, that they're going to eat the dog. And then... In the very final passages, you find out he kills the girl and feeds her to the dog so that the dog can survive. That's brilliant and so relatable. (laughs) I've always felt deeply conflicted about it because it's an incredibly misogynistic story, like problematically so. But I love dogs so much that I was just delighted that he did it. It was like, this is really bad, but I'm so... I don't think I'm supposed to be on board with this decision, but I was completely on board with it. (laughs) In our episode of Douglas Mawson, there's a point where they've been eating the dogs gradually and there's two men left alive after the rest of their party have died horrific deaths and they get down to the final dog and then pass the final dog. And one of... The man is very ill at death's door in the tent and allegedly in his delirium asks Douglas Mawson, am I a man or a dog? And it's that, yeah, blurring of human life with animal meat and which you give the priority, yeah. And I suppose you also have, in that story, you've got the concept of sort of personhood where you have that, priority being not necessarily a member of your own species but a member of your own in group Mm -hmm. my dog's my family i will say that we do like to blur the lines of what counts as cannibalism and i think that is a really interesting one i couldn't eat my dog my dog could eat me though i know that she definitely would well i think that that's a beautiful place to end this (laughs) <laughs> thank you so much for joining us neil before we let you go do you have any recent or upcoming projects aside from the amazing talking scare podcast that you'd like to promote to our listeners whilst you're here you know what it's all podcast all the time really i have a few articles coming out in esquire start writing for them if you want to get a sense of my sort of taste and sensibilities, I wrote a thing called The 50 Greatest Horror Novels Will Scare You Shitless for Esquire. Uh, it's a rundown of 
exactly that. And the hunger and the terror feature on it. I think there are probably some other cannibal adjacent books on there too. So that's a good read to give you a sense of who I am. But yeah, just please, if you want a bit of a insight into the minds of some macabre people, come over and listen to the podcast. If you want to fry it. Welcome back to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. We're joined by Nico, who is a writer and who I first met on a world builders panel about cannibalism. Nico, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection or interest in cannibalism, please? Yeah, hi. I'm Nicasio Andres Reed. I'm a Filipino American writer and editor. And in my day job, I edit novels and translation. And in my night and weekend job, I am the poetry editor at The Deadlands, which is an online science fiction fantasy magazine about death. <laughs> Perfectly fitted to this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I do. I think like a lot of people of my generation, I'm in my late 30s, I kind of just encountered the movie alive on TV at a very impressionable time. (laughs) It was a formative experience. It was. I don't know, like, if we're roughly the same age, but I was left to, like, just watch television, I think, as a babysitter in the... (laughs) in the early 90s and it was just on and little bitty Nico just was riveted and and I don't even think I have seen it since at least certainly not you know the whole thing but it left such an impression that it's one of my reference that for some reason that I come back to quite a lot so I think that was what struck the spark of of cannibalism in my life And, you know, I have a terrible memory and I had forgotten that we initially connected over that cannibalism. (laughs) Because I was a a listener of this podcast before that and World Builders, you know, just kind of gave me a blank check to be like, hey, what would you want to do a panel about? And I immediately, you know, obviously was like, oh, cannibalism for sure. (laughs) Obviously, it's the only answer. What else would you even talk about? Yeah, what else would you do if you wanted to to do a fundraiser and attract a big audience? <laughs> if you don't donate, this is what will happen. <laughs> exactly. Whoa, dark. Now, I actually have a confession to make. I've never watched the film Alive. What? I've read the book. I've watched all the documentaries. Y'all did a whole episode. I know, but I've never watched the film. This is freaking... You gotta do like an extra special episode that's just like a live watch. (laughs) Oh, but can you imagine how obnoxious I'd be if Uh, I... Oh, you'd be horrible. (laughs) That's that's, that's the fun of it, yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, that's the wrong seat number. Maybe if our audience demand... You don't donate to casting lots. We'll force you to watch me watch this this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And correct them like a pedant. First it was that one and then that one. She was sitting in a different seat number. It was A24. (laughs) I mean, yeah. The problem is that is exactly how it would go down. Mm -hmm. There's been this show recently that I don't know whether you've encountered, Nico, called Yellow Jackets. 
fiction for a girls' soccer team. They crash in Canada on an airplane, and that is exactly how I was watching the show. I was like, well, <laughs> when the miracle in the Andes happened, they actually did this, so these girls aren't making realistic choices. <laughs> you know, that is a television show that I've encountered purely through GIFs on Tumblr, and through that medium, I had no idea that was the premise of the show. <laughs> <laughs> it is really good fun, but... I, I thought they were at camp. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all these, these gifts of these girls sitting around like bonfires. And then later the older, I'm like, oh, they're reminiscing about their days. <laughs> <laughs> now I got to watch it though. That sounds great. It's really good. But there are times when they are not making the most sensible survival choices, in my professional opinion. I haven't seen it yet, but all the things that I've encountered from it, I'm like, and where's the cannibalism? I was told that this is a quote-unquote normal survival cannibalism. They're, are they going to go and make it weird? Are they going to do some weird ritual shit? Or are they just going to cut an arm off a dead body and roast it? It is one of those spoilers for anyone who hasn't watched the full season, but they haven't yet resolved this issue. But it's this question of, is there some kind of vengeful power in the forest that's causing them to behave like this? Or are they behaving like this because they're teenage girls? Um, and it's currently leaving that as a mystery, which I like. I don't know whether it will resolve on either side of whether there's supernatural intervention or whether it's just, you know, how it is when girls get together. <laughs> <laughs> they hunt each other for sport and eat each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I found that was true when I was young. <laughs> Why can't we just have a nice, normal survival cannibalism story? Why does it always have to be some external force? Why can't hunger be enough? You know, I think that's a good question. That kind of segues into our supposed topic. Yes. <laughs> On account of that, that does seem to be something that fiction wants to do is have some external supernatural reason for people to do what's deemed unnatural, right? So that you kind of, it's almost a forgiveness technique, I suppose. That does seem to be something that happens. I had such an important question about Yellow Jackets because I haven't seen it. So have they eaten anyone yet? It has a really strong opening to episode one where they are eating a body. Oh, excellent. And then that's a flash forward. Then it flashes back. And we don't know who's being eaten or under what circumstances, but definitely a human body gets eaten. Excellent. Okay. See, I want to know that up front. You know, I don't want my, my heart broken by being promised cannibalism in them. Yeah. It won't mess around with you. <laughs> I remember when Lost first came out and I was ready. I was primed. I even, every season they would show that dog. They had a dog. They had a whole like fat Labrador. <laughs> never, never even discussed it. Like, what are you doing? You know, there's a bunch of like city folk on this island. They don't know, they don't know how to feed themselves. And they got a chubby adult Labrador. I mean, I, I have four dogs, but come on. Yeah, but Lost also had a polar bear. They did have a polar bear, but you can eat the polar bear. I mean, the polar bear wasn't going to eat them, I think. A lot of stuff happened on that show. Or it possibly didn't happen. I didn't follow. <laughs> really? <laughs> Where that went. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I want to eat dogs. You know, it's not something I seek out. But if it came to it, you would eat the fat Labrador. I mean, that's fair. Certainly someone else's. <laughs> On 
the topic of pop culture and media. Am I correct in thinking that there has been a Mindy project, survival cannibalism fan fiction in your history? And I, I would love to hear more about the thinking behind that, the setup. Do tell me more, please. Oh, geez. You know, I, I didn't know that this is what I would become known for, but, <laughs> but in hindsight, it does make some, some sort of sense. <laughs> so, all right. So I, I've written fan fiction for, for years and years and years since probably high school and, you know, for various things. I was never really tied to one particular thing I was writing it for. It's just whatever I was into at the time, sometimes such a thing would happen. And I, for whatever reason, I got really into watching the Mindy Project, <laughs> like when it first came out, I really liked Mindy Galing. Chris Messina is just a smoke show. He's just like gorgeous. And it was just a really funny show. But my wheelhouse as a writer is far darker <laughs> and usually is a speculative fiction and, you know, like horror and, and body horror specifically. And somehow in my, in my brain, they just uh, mashed up. The true embodiment of inside of you, there are two wolves. <laughs> one is Christmas scene there, Mindy Kaling, and one wants to eat Mindy Kaling. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, so the story is called Bootylicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very long. It has an author's note at the beginning that says, like, I did no research on this story. <laughs> like, I, the research is literally, like, I saw a live once. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. And it's entirely that setup. It's just, like, they're crashed on a snowy mountain. Nobody's coming, and it was them, Mindy, and her fellow doctor, uh, Danny Castellano. And sometime before the action of this, their third, for some reason, there were only three people on this plane. <laughs> or maybe, let, let, let's say the pilot and them got flung, they're on some other peak, you know? Yeah, exactly. They got flung off. Or he was eaten by wolves. I don't know. But yeah, they had this other guy, Jeremy, their friend, who was pre dead when the story began. <laughs> Uh, so in media res. Yes, yes, that makes it much, <laughs> much more formal. And so, I mean, for me, the thing of it is that I love rom-coms. <laughs> I, I really, I honestly do. And I love survival stories and I love like survival cannibalism stories. And I, this is going to sound wacky, but I do think they have some of the same bones because you, <laughs> just stick with me on this. You have... <laughs> <laughs> I am so ready to hear this. <laughs> it's about the human condition. It's the human condition. So the idea that you have these characters that kind of start out usually with a fundamental miscommunication <laughs> in a rom-com, right? And people who don't quite know each other. And the action of the rom-com usually throws them in a situation in which neither of them is expert, right? So they're kind of like natural powers are taken away. And they're stripped down to like their most frustrated selves. Okay. And then through that, having to endure that together, they come to understand each other in a more fundamental way. And what could be more fundamental? And what could be more fundamental than sitting down together and eating your mutual friend? <laughs> <laughs> so for me, anyway, that's the one way that I like to look at rom-coms. I kind of look at rom-coms as a, in the same way I look at speculative fiction, they exist in not quite this universe right the rules are a little different in a rom-com 
Mm. You know, things are a little skewed in a rom-com. And so you have a bit of a narrative wiggle room to make things extreme. So I wrote this little story and the very small, you know, 20 person mini project fandom uh, (laughs) (laughs) were very, very sweet about it. I got a lot of comments that were like, I am not sure what just happened. Like, I'm <laughs> like, I don't, I feel bad for having read this, but in like a positive way. Hey. For me, like the fun of it is the genre mashing. The fun of it was like doing that extreme situation. So yeah, my like rom-com survival story, cannibalism, grand theory of the universe is that, <laughs> is that I guess these in fiction, I would say, obviously, rather than reality, in fiction, these survival cannibalism stories often premise themselves on revealing character through whittling away power and whittling away agency and, and in fact, whittling away civilization until you come to a place that's kind of beyond those things. In the terror season one, James Fitzjames says, yeah, we're, we're beyond vanity now. So I think that's where these things exist in a place beyond vanity. I have a very bad pun to make. Meat cute. Oh my god. I mean, that's the title. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. I am picturing, you know the type of illustration that you get on a rom-com? I just want meat cute, the book cover. <laughs> They're probably sitting around a fire. There are stars. It's very romantic. <laughs> There's a leg on a spear. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was like, well, what's turning on the fire? <laughs> There'll be a perfectly fed dog <laughs> next to them. <laughs> like they're just camping, just to bring it all full circle. I mean, we do have a running joke on the podcast about Bills and Boone, which is, you know, cannibalism erotica. And I think that, yeah, there's room to branch out into the more romantic fiction side of things. Absolutely. Thank you for justifying that. Yeah. <laughs> I I am literally writing down meet cute. You're welcome to use it. Please do. <laughs> when I need a sideline, that's gonna be that's gonna be my breakaway hit. <laughs> Who doesn't love that? Now you see what I'm really tempted to do right now is just go on AO3 and see what's been tagged as survival cannibalism. It's a term that that I didn't really use before I started listening to your podcast, you know, because like it was all just cannibalism to me. But the differentiation is important. You know, at the Deadlands, before my time there, we had a nonfiction piece by Katie Gill called The Custom of the Sea, which is sort of like a lightning fast rundown of a million different survival cannibalism scenarios. She uh, organized it very cleverly as a, a how-to. Oh, nice. Yeah, so you've uh, accidentally had to partake of The Custom of the Sea. How do you go about this? It's a really cute little article and has so many instances that I haven't heard of and that I don't think you've covered all of them yet. I don't know. There's a couple in there you might want to take a look at. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of Customer of the Sea ones where it's just tragically lacking information. So we know that people were on this boat and they ate each other. But where's the juicy details, you know? Like man cannot live on... They subsisted off the body for three weeks. I'm like, come on. But what were they feeling? <laughs> Which part of the body? These are the important questions that what we What did asked. it taste like? Mm-hmm. How did it haunt them? What have we got on AO3? So on AO3, I have just searched survival cannibalism. I'm just going to give a quick rundown 
of the fandoms where survival cannibalism has been tagged just so we can see the diversity wait i want to guess i want to guess the number one i feel like supernatural's got to be up there gotta be up there but is that too obvious it's a little obvious. I feel like there's got to be some RPF in there. Like there's got to be like some Harry Styles kind of <laughs> yeah. One Direction, you know. One Direction. They're on a plane flying to their next concert. <laughs> they're often on a plane, aren't they? They obviously eat Nile first. <laughs> there's a Nile? <laughs> well, there was. <laughs> Not anymore. Wah, wah. All right, what do we got? Okay, so the most popular on AO3 fanfiction featuring survival cannibalism, Mad Max. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah. Like, does that even count? That looks like a place where that just happens. Oh, don't worry. The next one okay. will take us back to those wild heights. Among Us, the video game. I love it. I see it. I see it. Because like sometimes when you get killed in that, you just become a little ham bone. Yeah. <laughs> My Hero Academia. There are also some very alternative tags on that that I will not be reading out loud. Naruto. No. Wow. <laughs> Outlast, the video game. Undertale, the video game. Whoa. Okay. Teen Wolf. Yes. <laughs> you were waiting for that one. <laughs> and shockingly low down on the list, Hannibal. <laughs> well, because it's never survival, right? Yeah. That's true. Star Trek and Star Wars are battling it out for next place. Cannibalism in space. It's got to happen. Little Nightmares video game. A lot of video game cannibalisms. Interesting. The Dragon Prince cartoon? What? Isn't that like a kid's cartoon? I'm surprised that's not a My Little Pony one, actually. Horse cannibalism is very underrepresented in media, I think. It might make you like horses more. <laughs> yeah. Are you a horse detractor? I don't trust them. Oh, that's fair. Dead by Daylight, and then The Untamed. Oh, there's like, there's canonical cannibalism going on there, so, yeah. It... Well, that's too easy. Mm. Snowpiercer, also canonical sort of survival cannibalism. Captain America, mm. The Avengers, and to wrap it up, The Hobbit. <gasps> <laughs> oh my lord, I need to know what species. <laughs> yeah, is it cannibalism, like if a hobbit eats a dwarf, or if an elf eats a human? I think elves could eat whoever. You know, from from their point of view. Yeah. Because they got the whole immortal thing going on. I think it appears to be dwarf cannibalism. Just dwarf on dwarf. Yes, I'm not repeating that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, coward. <laughs> so the survival cannibalism genre is thriving in fandom spaces. And I am very surprised that the terror wasn't on the first page. I am as well. You know, I think a lot of the terror fan fiction is sweeter than you would think. Coffee shop AU, yeah. Yeah, because like, I mean, I know because I go looking for the, the horrible stuff and it's all just, you know, like, oh, everyone's alive. Like, that's not why I watch the show. <laughs> I don't want them to be alive. 
No, that's not the point. The point is they're all dead. <laughs> I think for me, you know, the terror, I loved that season. And I think it really epitomized what I love about that genre of fiction, not just like the trek across the ice genre of fiction, but the survival and the survival cannibalism. Can we call them tropes? I guess. Yeah, it's really that it does strip away things. When I start to pitch the show to people, they think that it's very dark and that it's very sad and it is those things, but more and more as it goes on, it's about finding the most loving way to let someone's life end and to witness the end of their life. In that one, the cannibalism is, I mean, it's complicated, obviously, but the moment it becomes an act of love is when, you know, the doctor poisons himself in order to die so the other guys eat him and they can't hurt anyone else. Yeah, that's what I love about cannibalism is how sweet and loving it is. <laughs> I'd say that jokingly, but I, but I am serious. You say that laughing, but like there's Alex about to get into it because they didn't do it in the terror because they were focusing a lot more on not quite black and white but your cannibals were the bad guys yeah in real situations in normal life you have this with the andes you have this with the skyhawk you have this in a lot of situations that people will sit down and talk about it they will say eat my body if i die it's that moment when Nando is about to walk off as one of the expeditionaries and he takes one of the leaders aside and his mother and his sister's body have basically been... Off limits. Off limits. And he just says, when we're gone, if you need to, you have my permission. Cannibalism isn't this evil thing done by evil people for evil reasons. It's how much can people want to survive and ultimately in almost all of these situations people want to survive for each other and then you get the absolute you know mad cases where only one person walks out and they're waving human hands off the ship and it's just like what the hell is going on on that boat (laughs) but for the most part it's emotional (laughs) Okay, I've had my cannibalism is all about the human condition moment. It is, though. It's true. No, no, I'm with you. For me, that is why I inserted it in a rom-com and, like, why I think that is actually a really interesting pairing is that, you know, you have a very serious thing that is about being human and that is about loving each other in an extreme situation. That's also the moment in the account of Alive that always gets me. That and just the fact that his sister and his mother were set aside voluntarily by everybody, that, that they wouldn't do that for so long. It just speaks immediate volumes as soon as you know that. Cannibalism is beautiful. Isn't it? Oh, nothing brings us together like cannibalism. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note... Thank you so much for joining us today, Nico. This has been fascinating. (laughs) Hasn't it? (laughs) I think we've all learned a lot. About each other, about ourselves, yeah. (laughs) About the AO3 algorithm. Before we let you go, do you have any upcoming projects or current projects that you would like to plug to our audience or encourage them to check out? 
I just want to plug the Deadlands again because it does seem like a good fit for the same audience. So if you're ever looking for short fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and we have a ongoing Ask a Necromancer feature that is coming up. It's a really, really cool magazine. I edit poetry. That's my domain. I get to do absolutely everything. So if you send me a poem, it is me. I will read it, not some intern schlub, you know? So you get this genius brain looking over, <laughs> looking over your words. And I would love more cannibalism content in my slush pile. You heard it here first, folks. If you don't get a whole load of cannibalism poems, I would be very disappointed. I will, in fact, be very disappointed. <laughs> Well, the challenge is out there. The gauntlet has been thrown down. The hand is still inside the gauntlet. <laughs> Lots of food for thought from this episode, pun intended. <laughs> I'm normally the bad one with puns. <laughs> you just like you threw out meat cute and now you're just drunk with power. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful. Wonderful to talk to you, Nico. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for thinking of me and having me here. I'd, uh, I I look forward to seeing how you make us sound like we were not just cracking up for the past half hour. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode featuring Neil McRobert and Acacio Reed. Next time we'll be speaking to a historian of corpse medicine a curious father-son duo, and a pair of fellow Morbid Audio Podcast Network members. Casting Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmella, with post-production and editing also by Carmella and Alex. Art and logo design by Ashley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett, Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network.